Hey folks, this is uh, Don Sheets from Mania Mess, and uh, we've got a couple of guests today for our podcast. We'll go around the room and have everyone introduce themselves. Hello everyone, it's Matt Scholl from Mania Mess. Hi, Whitney Randolph, uh, Region 6, Mania Mess. Becky Chagrasillas, Region 2. And Peter Goth, Region 5. We're really excited to have uh, Whit and Becky and Peter here to um, continue the dialogue about the new protocols. And much like we... we uh, we did last time around we're hoping to just review some of the major uh, changes that have happened in each of the protocol sections that they were the lead authors on and those include uh, gold for wit pink for becky and um, yellow for peter so a couple uh things just to let you guys know for the sake of time today we're actually recording this before the mdpb meeting Uh, we're a little crunched so we're going to cut out the frequently asked questions and the Mania Mess update for today, since uh, our last podcast was only two weeks ago, there hasn't been much change. So we're going to jump right into the protocols, and uh, Matt's going to kind of lead that discussion today and uh, talk with each of the individual medical directors who were responsible for that section. Great. And um, what I think we'll do is, similar to last month, we'll just highlight some of the major changes. There, there are some minor grammatical or minor formatting changes that you'll see when you see the final draft of the protocols very soon. Um, but why don't we, uh, instead of getting into that fine detail, talk about the major changes. And uh, one of the things that's very, I think, important for this podcast is to give the reasons behind those those changes. Um, perhaps we should just do this sequentially and start with Wit. And Wit, um, what were some of the major changes that happened in the gold section this time around? Well, major changes this time around would include... Um epinephrine use uh, for anaphylaxis. Uh, We're now uh, having first doses given prior to online medical control. And uh, basically we're doing this because of the recognition of of true anaphylaxis being a life-threatening emergency. And we didn't want to delay uh, online medical control contact for the first dose. Um, Also recognizing that it could be a rapidly evolving problem you may come on scene they're not anaphylactic yet but they evolve into that so we wanted to be able to allow for early treatment of that emergency um, I think another important thing that we did there was to really hopefully um, instruct folks around or remind folks about what anaphylaxis is and um, prompt folks to consider epi early in anaphylaxis is that right Will? that's correct yeah some of the things we want you to be looking out for, uh, early airway compromise, obvious respiratory distress, um, abdominal pain, but also associated with vomiting, diarrhea, um, widespread hives, itching, uh, to be included with that, uh, also signs of circulatory shock. And I, You know, it's funny, I think um, if folks are interested, you can reflect back to the second po- podcast that we recorded, I believe it's the second podcast, and we touched base on allergy and anaphylaxis briefly there. And one of the things we recognize is that there's commonly delays in provision of epinephrine. So um, Witt's, Witt uh, brought this to us as a group, I think um, very rightfully recognized that adding the step of online medical control could uh, accentuate those delays to some extent. That's correct. Um, another uh, important area of change you'll see um, is under seizure management and status seizures. I'm sorry? 
Do you want, should we talk about real oh, quickly the, uh, okay. the anaphylaxis, uh, the end of the anaphylaxis algorithm? Because there were some big changes at the beginning of the anaphylaxis algorithm, but there's also some big changes at the end of the Well, we are adding IV uh, epinephrine um, in terms of uh, oppressor use. Basically, um, it's going to be on an infusion pump only. Um, people aren't going to be mixing drips and giving them uh, by like a micro drip. It's all going to be on, on a pump. So in failure of... Uh, IM, and you get an IV in place who can start using IV epinephrine. If I might add one comment, this is Becky. Um, we do want to stress that uh, repeat IM uh, would be a preferable option over proceeding to a drip. This is just for severe cases of um, shock that may be developing for patients that haven't had response to repeat IM doses. <coughs> Essentially, we're talking about peri-arrest, peri really, in this case, you know. Here at the, they're extremists and uh, just about ar arrested or, in fact, in arrest due to anaphylaxis. Yeah, if folks remember, the end of the algorithm allowed for uh, IV pushes of epinephrine, which I think we have Becky to, to thank for um, helping us recognize just how dangerous IV epinephrine is in a patient with a pulse. And it's dangerous for a couple different reasons, not the least of which is that with epinephrine, there are different concentrations. And because of the differences in concentrations, we've seen occasions in which patients receive a much higher concentration than intended. Uh, and in fact, uh, there are local cases in which patients have received doses of 1 to 1,000 versus 1 to 10,000. And, you know, I, I think it was Becky and, and uh, Kate Zimmerman who really helped us think through this process and think about a much better and safer way to, um, to do this. And I think the end of the story is you'll see that we have uh, changed from pushing epinephrine to dripping and creating, a, as Witt mentioned, a drip rate for epinephrine. Um, Becky and Kate and some of the pharmacists around the state really helped us fine-tune this, and I think it's going to end up being a really, uh, a really awesome way to do this and a safe and effective way to do this as well. Yes, I agree, Matt. Um, I don't think people realize the uh, extent of medical errors that have occurred with uh, press dose um, of epinephrine. And so this is really a patient safety issue. And I appreciate the um, time that Kate, especially in working with pharmacists, has taken to come up with a, a solution that allows for the use of epi in in those severe situations where people need them, but can be done as safely as possible. Yeah, yeah. One of the, just a note of caution mm -hmm. here, one of the things that happens um, with injectable epinephrine, there's a lot of jitteriness, patients get jumpy, uh, essentially produced a panic attack. And one of the things I think you want to ask yourself, if you start to give multiple doses of epinephrine and you don't see objective signs, is, is this patient having a an anxiety reaction, functionally a panic attack. And it might be something that you just want to consider before you start. When, when you start to have repeat doses of epi, just keep in mind that, that you may be looking at something like, like an anxiety reaction. And just be cautious if you're going to start pushing IV epinephrine or even multiple doses of epinephrine. Just run that through your head first. Is this, is this anxiety or is this really anaphylaxis getting worse? Yeah, that's a good point, and you know, I, I think our educational um, our educational products will 
really need to stress and reinforce the thought process behind going to this. Right. But uh, we we have the MDPB um, really led by Kate and Becky and, and, and Peter and Witt kind of talked about this quite a bit and how you get there. And I think the, the best we can offer you is multiple repeated doses of IM epinephrine and in a patient who is uh, in the peri-arrest sta- status, i.e., persistent and ongoing and worsening hypotension uh, in particular here, or someone who is having a respiratory failure um, near arrest as well. So what other major changes have we uh, seen in the gold section? Uh, Seizure treatment for status seizures has changed. Uh, Last year we had a New England Journal of Medicine article, I believe it was January, excuse me, February of 2012, um, the Rampart study. Uh, came out, which is intramuscular versus uh, IV therapy for pre-hospital status epilepticus. They defined that as seizures that lasted greater for five minutes prior to EMS arrival or ongoing intermittent seizure activity for at least five minutes with no resulting return to consciousness. And essentially, this was a double-blinded brand, double, uh, randomized trial uh, that looked at uh, the ability of IM medication versus IV medication to terminate status seizures prior to arrival at the emergency department. So uh, the authors set this up with roughly 900 patients. They divided it into equal groups. Adults, uh, pediatrics, geriatrics were included. And uh, they had uh, patients receiving both uh, an IM and an IV dose of medication, one of which was a placebo, the other was the real medicine. So in the uh, IM group, if they got an IM medication that was supposed to be Versed or a placebo, um, and if it was in the IV group, it was uh, IV placebo versus IV uh, lorazepam. Anyway, uh, the upshot was they were looking to see whether IM medications were any worse or at least not inferior to IV medications. And the finding was that in this case, they found uh, intramuscular midazolam or Versed was at least as good, if not better, than the current standard of care in most emergency departments, which is four milligrams of lorazepam or Ativan. Um, There were fewer episodes of of resistant seizure activity in the intramuscular group, and uh, most more patients arrived having had their seizures terminated. And, and the, probably the biggest reason for this was the difficulty getting intravenous access for many patients. Uh, they sometimes substitute intraosseous, but there was still a time delay over the administration of the intramuscular uh, midazolam. Yeah, and so what you'll notice is that we've changed the dosing scheme around a little bit for um, seizures and reflected the dosing uh, range in IM uh, versed. Uh, you know, I, I was it was talking, I was thinking to myself about uh, Jonathan's comments in the last protocol update from 2011, who reminded us that if we get dispatched for a seizure but we get on scene and the patient's not seizing, we certainly don't need to give benzos there. We need to give benzos for active seizures. And one way, perhaps, to gauge whether a person is in status epilepticus is if we get dispatched for seizure, we arrive, and the patient's still seizing. Remember that we think about status in different ways, the duration of the seizure, seizure, post-ictal, re-seizure, total numbers of seizures and events. And there's a lot of different ways to think about status, but one way for us to consider status is the patient who continues to seize when we arrive on scene. 
And I think what the, this study called the Rampart trial taught us is that the fastest way to abate the seizures in that patient is IM versed. Now, you'll notice that the IV option still is the first option because what we recognize is sometimes we get on scene, the patient's not seizing, but we're in transit with an IV already established and the patient seizes in front of us with an IV. And I think that once the IV has been established, that becomes the fastest way to provide benzodiazepines. In fact, Becky was just telling me about a patient from, I think it was last night, who seized at, an, uh, at a local establishment um, uh, in, in route, already had an IV established and seized again in front of the paramedics and received uh, IV benzodiazepines in that case. So in those situations, Rampart wasn't looking at that. They were looking at per people without access. And I think if the person already has an IV, certainly providing IV benzodiazepines is fast. But in the person without any access, the IM route is probably preferable uh, for all those reasons listed. Now, one of the things I thought was interesting in this study also was the fewer complication rates in the uh, uh, IM midazolam group, um, possibly because they had their seizures terminated a little bit quicker, more of them arrived without seizure activity. There was, there was fewer ICU admissions, hospitalizations, and intubations. And I think one of the big things that we see from that study is that the biggest indication for intubation was continued seizures. Mm. Um, also, one thing they pointed out was the sooner we can stop these, the, the better chance they have of not going on to develop very resistant seizures that require second and third line drugs. I think that's an important point. And one one way that I've come to recognize or think about seizures is that seizures in some ways are like ventricular fibrillation um, in that our ability to stop them is best early. And as the VF or the seizure persists, they become increasingly refractory and refractory to the things that we do, either medications in the case of seizures or electricity and medications in the case of VF. So that's a really important point that you bring up with. Let me ask you, when, the, when they compared the IM versed with the IV Ativan. Did that include the time involved starting the IV? It did, yeah, and that I think was one of the key features of, of the non-inferiority issue with this mm -hmm. is that the time to start an IV was, was definitely 90 seconds, around 90 seconds I think on average. If you're good. If you're good. And mm -hmm. But it makes Matt's point that once you have an IV then you want to use IV meds. Exactly. If you have if one you have already, an IV, use, it, use yeah. IV meds. But if, but if you, you have don't have an seizing, IV, use IM. Right. Quick if you have something seizing, don't try to start an IV. You can feel totally yeah, confident yeah, yeah. giving it intramuscularly, and you're doing the right thing That's to do right. that. And then get your IV. Yeah. Versed yeah. or, or midazolam also is, is more water-soluble than a lot of the other medicines we might use, so the uptake is a little, is a little better intramuscularly. Um, so it's fairly quick onset. I just want to throw out one more thing that's kind of exciting as a provider. I think back to the 2011 protocols and actually the discussions that you all had about what the right thing to do uh, was with seizure patients, and there was a lot of consternation about what that was, and I think you all kind of acknowledged at the time that none of you had the best answer, and here we are two years later with evidence in front of us, and the MDPV took the time to really study that evidence, look at it, and work that into our protocols. And I just wanted to point that out for providers who are listening to this, that this was yet again another time where evidence really supported that um, EMS providers, that there's a, there's a place, there's a time, um, and that our medical directors are actually looking at that evidence and using that to dictate what our protocols are. Yeah, I think you're right. And one thing that I was just thinking as, as Don was talking is that this, this was a, 
pretty well done study. And uh, what's really nice about this study is it focused exclusively on EMS and the value of EMS and how what we do matters. And, you know, there are an increasing number of studies like this. I think back, and certainly there's the OPAL study that taught us a lot about cardiac arrest. There's a couple other, lots of other studies, but I think this one in particular, which focused almost exclusively on us and what we did, had big numbers, had great, great analysis. This is, a, this is an important one, and you'll see this, um, you'll see this reference in the protocols um, if you're interested. Please let Don or myself know. We'll send you a copy of the trial. Um, it's it's a pretty pretty neat study. Yeah, you should be able to get this article for free if you Google it. It's pretty. You can find it, no charge. I did. <laughs> Great. Any other comments about the seizure section, Becky or Witt or Peter? Um, not at the time. Nope. I think we'll leave dosing to. Yeah. Well, let's talk. We'll get to we'll, we'll get to the, all the dosing now. stuff. Just know that both the I M dosing reflects the Rampart trial. The IV dosing has been altered to reflect the. As best we can do, we can figure out an equivalent uh, IV dosing, uh, and the similar things have happened in the pediatric section as well. The, the only other thing I would comment on is that as we start to use this protocol, there you may find some interesting responses to uh, your reception at various emergency departments because I don't know that everybody is aware of this uh, protocol yet. They will be, but or it will be made available to them. But more often than not, ER physicians are still using Ativan intravenously um, because that's what they've been doing. And if you have an IV, there's not a really bad reason to use it. But they may be surprised to see the doses that you're using. But this is now becoming our standard of care for pre-hospital. So don't let that scare you. Yeah, that's a good point. the next thing we were going to talk about, uh, we're clarifying 12-lead EKGs uh, in abdominal pain. And this came from feedback from uh, EMS services in our, to me in Region 6. Uh, their feeling was that a lot of 12-leads were being done on young people with a lower abdominal pain with no cardiac risk factors. And that it was being done per protocol. And, in fact, there was some variation in uh, carrying out the protocols because of that. And I thought to clarify that, we would make the change that uh, patients with upper abdominal pain and cardiac risk factors or anything that seems to indicate a cardiac risk factor age, um, past history of MI plus abdominal pain, you would get a 12 lead. But you know, a young woman in her teens, 20s, or a young guy with abdominal pain and no risk factors probably doesn't need to get an EKG especially if it's lower abdominal pain. Yeah, we, I think we have Jonathan to thank for reminding us that abdominal, when we added the abdominal pain protocol in 2011, we recognized that abdominal pain is a common uh, way that cardiac disease uh, presents, especially in the older population. And I, I think Jonathan very rightly so recognized the need to consider that mimic, um, and so we placed the 12-lead recommendation in there uh, however, um, Wits also correct that we we didn't take all contingencies into play, and so what we know is that anything from the neck to the navel can cause can be uh, cardiac and etiology, and we've le- left it now to say that if you have abdominal pain, abdominal pain plus risk factors for cardiac disease, do an EKG. So that's the way we left it, which I think is a good way to to leave it for now. I'd like to say that um, this is a good example of when protocols are developed. It's feedback from the services that help us uh, improve the next time. 
and I think all of us as regional medical directors got sufficient feedback of why are we doing EKGs on these young people with no risk factors that um, we listen. So I want to mention that, so we appreciate that kind of feedback. That's a very good point, Becky. Keep it coming, too. <laughs> Another thing on, under abdominal pain, we have uh, removed uh, online medical control calls for your initial dosing for fentanyl, uh, one milligram per kilogram IV for, in the setting of abdominal pain, and that's basically undifferentiated abdominal pain. Subsequent doses we still want you to call in for, but the feeling was for ease of patient transfer and uh, earlier care of their pain, uh, it would make sense for you to be able to do that. Fentanyl we know is safe for most patients and a milligram per kilogram is a reasonable dose to start with. Um, patients that get to the emergency department with their pain better controlled tend to do better through their ED course of stay. Yeah, micrograms, yeah. Excuse me. <laughs> typo, verbal typo. Um, and they're easier to examine, too, by the ER physicians. If their pain is under control, that you get a better abdominal exam is what we're finding now. Have some really relaxed patients. <laughs> yes, and a happier trip into the hospital, too, I think. And I think this, this highlights, once again, the need for really robust and redundant communication between us and the hospitals, because it's important for our evaluating physicians to understand the patient was treated for pain between uh, calling 911 and arriving at the hospital. Uh, it, it does all the things that Witt mentioned, but uh, I think it is an important thing for the physician to consider when evaluating that patient. So please consider the things that we discussed in the Brown section regarding uh, communication between you and your receiving hospital, both verbal as well as written in some form. Uh, finally, uh, under the abdominal pain section, uh, we've added the oral dissolvable tablets for Zofran. If you can't get an IV, you can go ahead and give these uh, four milligram oral dissolvable tablets of Onansetron, um, Zofran. And uh, this, is, again, is, reflects our current clinical practice in the emergency department as well. I don't think you'll have any big issues with that one. No, yeah. <laughs> well, great. Um, any... Um, Final thoughts from anyone about the gold section? Uh, the one other thing that we talked about, I, I think, was under um, pressers, that we're changing our pressers of choice. Uh, and again, this is based on uh, our best clinical evidence from sepsis, surviving sepsis trials and subsequent trials uh, and studies from that initial work done a decade or more ago. Um, and that is, uh, there's a slight uh, survival uh, benefit as well as reduction in uh, morbidity with uh, norepinephrine or levofed versus dopamine. So we are going to be changing that uh, protocol. So we'll, we won't be having dopamine, we'll be having the levofed now. And that'll again be on IV pump. Um, and dosing we'll talk about later on, but I think that's worth mentioning that that's going to be our, our system presser of choice. There will be some important educational points around uh, medical shock and sepsis. I think that uh, <clears throat> it's difficult in the field to know the uh, true volume status of the patient, and we are finding that many patients need uh, a lot of fluid, and certainly that would be our treatment of choice, calling for medical control to see how much fluid that patient might need before we would even move to presser. So that will be coming out with some education. But the, the choice of presser has been changed. But I think the, the timing and the use of the presser, presser will have to have some 
education? Absolutely, that's a great point, Becky. Um, and what what reminded me, I had I, I we had covered this in the red section as well. And if you want more details about why we converted from dopamine to norepinephrine, please reflect or review last month's uh, podcast in which Tim and Kate and I talked about pressors and why we're changing. Also, Tim has authored a white paper for us on, that kind of talks on this point. And the bottom line, I think that this is uh, going to end up being a better option for our patients. However, Becky is exactly right that one of the reasons why our medical shock and septic patients are so ill is because they haven't been resuscitated enough. And pressors are the end of the resuscitation scheme. And so in our educational updates, we'll be talking more about that. So keep your ears open for that online uh, and uh, in the face-to-face didactic sections that we have coming up for protocol updates. So thank you all very much for going over those those sections. Why don't we um, why don't we why don't we switch gears a little bit and uh, and talk to Peter, uh, Doctor Goth, who um, authored our yellow section changes. And there's really um, one really big uh, change in this, was, which is the addition of a new protocol, uh, protocol specific to drowning. And perhaps I can give a little bit of background about how this became uh, important for us. Uh, I think we've all uh, encountered pre-hospital patients who have suffered from drowning, submersion injuries. Um, while, uh, while Kevin Kendall was looking at our protocols and comparing them across the nation, he recognized that most other states had contingencies for drowning, and we were one of the, that was one of the things that we had, we did not have. And so um, Kevin and uh, uh, Peter looked at this, we realized that there was a an important um, there was an this was an important protocol we were missing, and so Peter uh, has helped put this together and has some uh, good educational points and a white paper he authored on drowning. And we wanted to spend some time talking to him today about drowning and the protocol around drowning. So Peter, why don't you take it from there? Okay, I think the first thing to keep in mind is that that drowning is a respiratory event. Um, it's primary respiratory impairment. And uh, the second thing to keep in mind is that it's often associated with cold patients or hypothermia. So when you put all that together, we th- I think we might want to make some adjustments in, in the way we resuscitate these patients. Uh, the, way, the way drowning patients are resuscitated is basically dealing with the, the uh, oxygenation ventilation component first and that's a bit unusual in the monitor it's a, not exactly the same as the standard approach to an adult cardiac arrest patient and certainly in my experience the the ones in the field setting the ones if you're going to get a drowning patient to recover those first two breaths will do it or they won't and the ones that recover are going to recover quickly and it's something like ventilation so having said that um it's it's always safe if it's a, a drowning victim it's always safe to throw two quick breaths in there and that's the that is a slight deviation from the uh, American Heart's recommendation for the adult cardiac arrest and that's okay the other thing is if if you put all the other protocols together like hypothermia 
and the American Heart's recommendation for hypothermia, you realize that they, uh, they recommend, too, taking a f full minute to feel for a pulse that is absent in a hypothermic patient. So when you consider that a drowning patient is, um, certainly in this area, is almost always to some degree hypothermic, um, taking some time to feel for a pulse, like a minute, and during that minute, there's, it's not harmful to throw in two breaths, um, you may find that, <clears throat> that that's just a practical approach to the very, very, very early management right on scene. So those are, and, and from there it just goes standard American heart as far as uh, chest compressions, as far as defibrillation, even as far as meds until you get somebody documented to be like severely hypothermic, but that's in another setting. So again, it's a, it's a primary respiratory problem and it's fixed with a primary respiratory fix. And that's really not um, all that different. It really is uh, pretty much consistent with American Heart, everything else. I don't want to make a big deal of that. But Peter, what would the role of CPAP be in these type of patients? I think once they're resuscitated, then <coughs> I think CPAP is, is good. What we would use in a hospital setting is as much positive pressure as we can get because these people aspirate, uh, most of them aspirate, and that turns into kind of an adult respiratory distress picture, and the more that you can have uh, positive pressure, the better. So certainly CPAP would be a good thing en route once you've resuscitated them. Yeah, so um, I always think about this a little bit, and the way I think about it is that water gets into the lungs, washes out surfactants, alveoli collapse and CPAP stents those alveoli open. Is that your understanding too, Becky and Peter? Yeah. Yes, I, I agree. Yeah. I think the other thing to keep in mind is there, there are delayed effects from aspiration of water and <clears throat> it's kind of a common, a common scenario uh, in the field when somebody has been resuscitated or um, <clears throat> recovered, they call these non-fatal drownings now. They're not, near drowning is a term that's kind of been re replaced by non-fatal drowning. It's, there's the temptation to not transport some of these patients who have been in a uh, submersion uh, event and had a brief period of unconsciousness. They come up, you give them two quick breaths and they cough and vomit a bunch of water and I'm okay. But they're not okay because aspiration has a delayed effect. So these people need to be observed for something like an eight-hour effect. There's a, uh, there's a delayed effect in most of these people. So, yeah, they still need to be transported even though you were a hero at the scene and, and you saved their life. Still, you want to watch them pretty close for the next eight hours anyway. Quick, quick question, Peter. Yeah. Um, back in the day, we used to refer to wet and dry drownings. Are those right. terms out of favor now? Are they all wet drownings? They're, it's a good question. It, what, the terms were so confusing that uh, several, several uh, efforts have been made internationally to try to come up with some uh, guidelines. The Utstein guidelines were developed uh, early after 2000, and the American Heart now, um, in their new 2010 guidelines, Use, refers to those Utstein guidelines. And those Utstein guidelines would break it down now into drowning fatal and drowning non-fatal. Out of those, 
the terms wet drowning and dry drowning, what the, that applies to, those things, the physiology still remains. So when you aspirate, when you bring water into the, <clears throat> to the uh, respiratory, upper respiratory uh, anatomy, what you'll get a, um, one of two things will happen. You'll either aspirate it into the lung and become hypoxic that way, or you'll have laryngospasm and become hypoxic that way. So the laryngospasm and the aspiration are sort of the, the two opposite ends of a, of a spectrum of the reaction to that uh, reflex urge to breathe. So are there people who drown whose lungs are fairly clear of water? And the, and the answer is yes. But So you'll have the urge to breathe. It's a reflex. You'll either have uh, laryngospasm, aspiration, or both. But what it sounds like you're telling us is that in the end, the same effect occurs, i.e. Yes. hypoxia. Exactly. And this is, in the end, a respiratory arrest. So that while those terminologies and while that physiology does exist, that the consequence is the same between the two types of patients. Is that exactly. right? Exactly. And the yeah. treatment is the same, certainly in the field setting for the two types of patients. One of the things it does bring out, though, and, and Witt's question is good, is that uh, <clears throat> these drowning patients have really good resuscitation outcomes. And one of the reasons is sometimes their lungs are not particularly overwhelmed with fluid. Sometimes it was the laryngospasm that caused them to be unconscious. Um, and so, again, the other thing is protective is cold water. So we're finding now that um, <clears throat> sometimes resuscitations can go on for more than hours if the patient is still cold and could get to a tertiary care center and these people can often um, recover. I think the other thing is it's important to look at these numbers as far as when to do resuscitations and when to not. We're finding that cold water is protective but just how protective and how cold. So here's what we're using. If they've um, if the water is less than 43 Fahrenheit, which is cold, that's mm, <laughs> That's cold water. Uh, what's the <laughs> Gulf of Maine is 50-some in the summer. So this is, this is Maine water. And if it's uh, less than 43 and less than 90 minutes, then we're looking at full resuscitation. These people can recover. If it's greater than 90 minutes, no matter what the temperature of the water, if they've been submerged that long, that's, you're really not going to save the patient. You might save some organs. Just know that's what you're doing but you're not going to save the patient. So when rescuers are at risk and those kind of resources are limited, um, those are some numbers we threw in the protocols just to make have some practical reference. Yeah, and I think that thank, – thank you for that, Peter, because one, one of the things that we commonly don't know what to do with is resuscitation in a cold water environment and who right. to and who not to initiate on. And I think that what we – we benefited from a, uh, a meta-analysis – of all the the report, the case reports of patients who um, were subject to cold water uh, submersion or drowning events. And what that did for us, it really sort of clarified a lot of those anecdotal reports of, you know, children or adults underwater for prolonged periods of time with full full recovery. And it helped give us more clarity on what the time frame really should be, and I think right. that's really helpful. Right. At some point in, in a field setting, in a rescue setting, you know, you, you do have to have some practical guidelines, um, and that's what we've tried to provide for you in the protocols. And you can, 
there's some hard numbers. That, yeah, that would great. be helpful. One one other thing I would just as a big a big piece of dealing with uh, drowning patients in a real field environment is that there's a downside to just going ahead uh, without thinking and using standard adult cardiac arrest protocols. Keep in mind that drowning patients are often hypothermic. So this 43-degree water, people in 43, they're hypothermic. Now, if you put the hypothermia protocols together and you see that you have to make sure that they don't have a pulse, well, what's the what's the reason for that? The reason for that is that they don't have a pulse. If they do have a pulse and you just can't feel it, hmm, and then you start compressing on their chest or any other rough movement, then you can actually cause harm by by bumping these people around, including chest compression. So I just want to emphasize that we've we've had cases like this happen in Maine, where the person was alive till they started to rescue him. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> so here's the point. When, when you're rescuing somebody initially out of cold water, and, again, you don't have a core temperature, but you suspect they're hypothermic, certainly if you're playing around with 43 degrees water and they've been in long enough to drown, they probably are going to be cold. Just make sure that you have a pulse, <clears throat> that you're pulseless before you start doing chest compressions. You've got two rescue breaths you can do, a full minute, of uh, searching for a pulse is American Heart standard, uh, but from a practical point of view, well, if they have any sign of life, if they move, if they burp, if if there's any movement at all, that's a sign of life. And these patients are often bradycardic as well as hypothermic. And I guess I'm just making a, a caution: be sure you don't have a pulse. Take a little extra time, and that's American Heart recommendation. Because if they do have a pulse and you start to do standard resuscitation on them, that, that can make them lose their pulse. So. That's a great point. And as you're talking, Peter, I'm thinking to myself that there are so many, there are so many places in where this uh, interplays with other protocols. And the other one that this interplays with is the post-resuscitation care protocol in which we've uh, allowed or we've uh, asked for providers to consider therapeutic hypothermia, and if you're already hypothermic, we certainly don't want to add to the cold level. Mm -hmm. And I think in those cases where you've got a cold victim of drowning who's been resuscitated and now has a pulse, we would let those, per those people be and bring them to the hospital and let the hospital sort of fiddle around with temperature and temperature modul modulation. Is that your right. thought too, Peter? Exactly right. You start rewarming beyond 32 centigrade um, then you're going to actually be causing damage again. So keep in mind that cold is protective. Cold is protective. Yeah, yeah. And 32 degrees centigrade, I think that's 92 degrees Fahrenheit. Is that, is that Something right? Something like that. Yeah, yeah, close to that. Great. Well, you know, it's funny. As I'm, as I'm sitting here watching Peter talk about this, I'm thinking to myself, who better to give you guys a little bit of knowledge than the, one of the forefathers of wilderness medicine? And that's really cool mm. that Peter was involved in this. And mm. what a great gift to our state to have him involved in this process. So thank you, Peter. Um, any other major changes to the yellow section that we, we should touch base about? That's one big change. How about the, uh, the, the um, agitated patient? Oh, yeah, and yeah. Actually, Witt had a lot to do with trying these these protocols out in his own hospital setting, his own region. So, yeah, we had quite a, a bath salt epidemic in our region last summer, uh, which has since uh, fizzled quite a bit. However, uh, we did 
recognize the need for more aggressive field sedation measures with these patients. And as such, we developed uh, with Jonathan Busco um, protocol for the agitated delirious patient. Uh, without getting into great detail, basically it was high dose intramuscular midazolam once again to the rescue, anywhere from four to 10 milligrams, which was protocolized, uh, basically moderately agitated to severely agitated patients. Um, this was all done before contacting online medical control. And um, the results were fairly encouraging, such that we'll probably be adapting this, to, we are adapting this to our protocols now. Uh, we really didn't have any cases of excessive sedation to the point where they needed to be intubated. Um, and uh, we thought we'd have quite a few more cases, and unfortunately the bath salt users found a better drug apparently and are doing better with it now. But I'm not sure that's unfortunate, but... <laughs> well, unfortunate for our desire to have more patients enrolled in this uh, initial trial. Um, and one of the benefits we found was that it was a quick onset of action. It could be injected into any major muscle. And uh, all they had to do was inject, wait for the results for some calming effect before transport, and then transport the patient. And we went from having uh, patients that were wildly out of control in the back of an ambulance on arrival at the emergency department to somebody that was manageable and able to be transferred into a busy emergency department without pulling all the resources to one patient on arrival. Mm -hmm. um, they did not uh, need intubation at that point because of the Versed. Uh, they may or may not have eventually because of the degree of their intoxication from their bath salts. That might have been the only way to manage them once the Versed started to wear off. Um, traditional things like Haldol and Ativan were not doing the trick. So mm -hmm. heavier duty drugs like propofol sometimes were needed mm -hmm. more to induce an ICU coma type of state. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, this keeps coming back to the, the notion of I am versed might be your best friend uh, in the field setting and in the in the ER. It's safe. Um, the LD50 on <coughs> benzodiazepines is generally very safe. Uh, and versed being so water soluble and quick acting it really is your friend. It's my friend in the ER. Um, so we're, we're sharing that with you in the field. Uh, it's, it's wonderful stuff. Uh, the other thing is you, when, you, when, you're giving, when you're giving meds IM, one of the things you might want to think about is be sure it's going in the muscle and not in the fat. A sub-Q dose of something is very different than an IM dose. When we're dealing with anaphylaxis, for example, <coughs> we use the lateral thigh. Why is that? Because even in a fairly obese person, that's probably the least amount of protective fat. And if, if I have an agitated patient or a seizing patient that, I'm, that I really need to stop quickly, think of it like an EpiPen. Um, I would have no, I would, I would, what do you guys think? I would have no qualms about giving an IM shot through somebody's pants if they're that agitated. It's better than a taser. It's kind of like an EpiPen. Same thing goes for seizures. If you really have a, a radically dangerous situation, the, the lateral thigh is the pickup. And if you really get it into a muscle, the pickup IM is actually quite quick. But it's yeah. not quick going sub-Q into fat. One proviso, I certainly agree that um, crew safety is critical here. Um, when it comes to bath salts and some of these designer drugs, they need to be sedated quickly. If there is significant alcohol on board, I will say there's a significant possibility of respiratory de depression. 
uh, that's another educational point that we'll talk about. In, in fact, the last patient we had was a severely alcohol intoxicated patient. They got uh, 10 milligrams <laughs> intramuscular Versed, and they did okay with it. Within 53 minutes, they were up and awake and needed Haldol and Ativan. However, yeah. Yeah. Um, they did not have any uh, significant episodes of hypoxia. They did have some snoring respirations that were readily managed yeah. with a nasopharyngeal airway that yeah. they did not end up needing uh, to be intubated. Their alcohol was like upper 280s. I think, so. I think some of the important changes here in the, are that, number one, we recognized that uh, because of issues surrounding crew safety uh, and because online medical control might delay the provision of benzodiazepines, that has been removed unless there are questions or, uh, about dosing. Now, Becky brings up a good point. In Witt's experience in the Rockland area, those are patients suffering from agitated delirium, many of them due to bath salts, and so higher doses of benzodiazepines were necessary. What you'll see reflected in the protocol is actually now a range that allows you to choose between the old dosing of 4 milligrams and the dosing that Witt and Jonathan used in their regions for bath salts, which is up to 10 milligrams. And I think the important piece here is just like we talked about in the last podcast, what we want you to do is use your judgment on dosing and the appropriate dosing. And if you have questions regarding the appropriate dosing, certainly at that point reach out to to online medical control. Not all patients are going to be bath salt patients. While we may need higher doses for the patients suffering from agitated delirium, not all patients require that. Patients, many patients are managed just just fine on lower doses, but we really need you to use your clinical judgment regarding what the correct dosing is. And as Becky mentioned, we'll help give some guidance in the educational sections around that. Great. So um, why don't we wrap it up by talking about the pink section. And there are some, some other changes in the pink section as well. We talked about one new protocol in the yellow section, and we need to talk about three major protocols that we've built in the, in the pink section. Becky, do you want to do that for us? Sure. I'll start off with one that um, is definitely new to people. Uh, it's called ALTI, or Apparent Life-Threatening Event. And this came from a review of another state who'd recently revised their protocols. And and it came to mind, uh, we've seen so many uh, infants and children who had these type of events. So this is a frightening event that occurs to a child where they may have um, a combination of uh, breathing difficulty, even apnea, color change, perhaps they turn blue. Um, often there's a, a degree of limpness and maybe limpness. <laughs> It may be a history that they were choking. So a combination of such events that obviously is very frightening to the patient. Uh, Many times when you arrive on the scene, uh, the patient's fine. They're breathing, they're sitting up, they're happy. Uh, So this is called a parent life-threatening event. And what we had seen in the past was because they look so well, uh, many times, well, gee, they're fine now. Um, Parents don't want the child to come in. Uh, we thought this would be an important protocol to roll out some education on. So basically, this is a protocol that will help pre-hospital people understand the potential seriousness of this type of event, that up to half of these children will have a serious underlying condition. Uh, For example, seizure, uh, sepsis, could be an ingestion of some type. Um, There are many, many diagnoses to be considered, and I think the important point here is that 
Uh, these events need to be taken seriously, and these children really, really need to come to the hospital. So we're hoping that this ALTI protocol will um, help advance our education and prevent some of these children from um, not being brought in when they really need to be. Great. That's a, that's a great point. I think many of us have seen situations in which a, par a parent calls 911 for a child either blue or limp or not breathing right, and a crew gets there, the patient looks fine, the uh, patient doesn't get transported for one of various reasons, but then ends up in arrest or a consequent uh, poor outcome because of an unrecognized serious underlying condition that led to that. Right, and as with many other conditions, um, the history that you get in the field is critical to us being able to evaluate that child. So when you're on scene, being able to get what happened, when it happened, what were the circumstances, what was done prior to your arrival, recording that for us is going to be really important for us to evaluate what happened because many times it's the history that we, um, we take our cues from. Great. And I think along those lines of what, whatever you can notice in terms of the child's environment may be a, a clue also because, again, these kids are going to look well. You know, see where the child was when this event happened if you can, if at all possible. Um, just so you get a better feel. And you may see some clues. Is there, are there a lot of debris that a small child might put in their mouth? You know, could this be a, a <coughs> potential for partial choking yeah. episode? Yeah. Um, are they in a crib with a lot of stuffed animals, pillows, so they get partially suffocated, something like that? Sure. So those, that kind of field information is pretty, in, pretty vital and sometimes gets, gets missed on a busy day. So if you, you see things and you think that might be important, it probably is, and you should make sure you pass it on. If, uh, I think if people want some more specific education on this, one, we'll be doing this more during the actual protocol update. But as well, you can go back to, I believe, our third podcast. Matt and I spoke uh, pretty extensively about Alti and uh, the specifics of what to look for. Um, so you can go back to that and review that podcast as well. Great. And then Dr. Zimmerman has written a nice um, white paper on this. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So we'll have a lot of different resources There'll be education in the protocols, uh, Kate's Alti white paper, and then the podcast from a while ago. Uh, so great, thank you, Becky, for building that one up. What what other uh, what other new protocols do we have? Well, um, this this is something that uh, uh, nausea and vomiting is something that we thought we would bring forward for specifically for pediatrics. Um, in fact, adding the orals offering to the adult kind of came from our discussion with pediatrics because. Um, in children that have been vomiting where IV access in the field might be difficult, um, we did create a nausea and vomiting protocol that gives you the option to give oral Zofran. <clears throat> if the child's significantly dehydrated, though, with altered mental status, um, these are kids that are critically ill. You want to try to get an IV in, if you can and even consider a fluid bolus. So the nausea and vomiting protocol is, provides an option for oral Zofran. If you do have an IV, um, preferably it's IV. There's an option for IM. But for children that clinically, and again using your judgment, uh, have, are severely dehydrated, then we also would want you to consider a fluid bolus. Yeah, great. And, you know, I, I'm actually really excited that, that Becky built this because I, I, I believe what we do matters. It matters a lot. And I'm really interested to see how pre-hospital provision of antiemetics in an otherwise healthy child with just nausea vomiting uh, 
uh, how that affects outcomes in the ED and time to discharge. And one of the things we're going to be looking at is trying to find what that impact is because I think it's going to be very positive at the level of the ED. Sure. I think that's an important point, Matt, because by the time they get to the uh, emergency department, if they've already had an anti-emetic on board, then we can begin oral rehydration sooner. And if they're failing that, then we can get the IV in. So I yeah. think that will help a lot. Yeah. Great. And what else is new? <clears throat> well, um, children uh, are also prone to suffering from pain. And, again, looking at another state's protocol prompted us that um, maybe we should think about a pain protocol, particularly for pediatrics. So uh, some interesting um, things, a, a little different from adults. They're a little harder to evaluate for pain. So we have a couple of um, tools that you might use in the field for smaller infants uh, or older children. So if they can't give you that uh, rating their pain on a scale from 1 to 10, there are two different assessments you might use. Uh, one of them, in particularly young children, you basically base it on um, their activity levels, um, whether they're able to be consoled, um, facial appearance. That's called the flax scale. And then there's another one with little pictures of faces, uh, the Wong-Baker faces scale. So I think being able to do some type of assessment for pain, just like we do in the ED, is important for two reasons. One is that it documents perhaps the severity of the pain, but also if you're going to get pain medicine, you want to continually reassess their um, response to see if repeat doses might be needed. So there are a couple tools for evaluating the level of pain. And then uh, concerning pain management itself, uh, fentanyl is the drug that we'll be <clears throat> putting into pediatric protocol, uh, which is uh, going to be weight-based. Uh, we'll talk about dosing later on, I know, but there is an option for intranasal dosing for fentanyl. So again, <clears throat> with children where IV access can be uh, difficult, um, we do feel it's important that we have good pain control, so there's an option for intranasal dosing. Think that covers it? Yeah, no, that covers it really nicely. And um, what we know about kids is that a big barrier to any type of medication is the need to place an IV. And in pain management, we have the option of intranasal, and so it becomes a becomes a way to abolish that barrier for pain control. Mm -hmm. Anything final to add to the pediatric section that we should consider from Peter, Witt, or Becky? Anything? One of the things I would I would just note on just our discussion today: look at all the the uh, sort of the best practices from the ER that are now being trans, um, transformed or transferred into a field setting that are really practical and effective. Like, you don't always have to get an IV to get something done. We're using IM, Versed. We're using uh, intranasal uh, pain meds. We're using sublingual Zofran. These are things that are really effective and I think it's it's it'd be real interesting to see. I think it'll make the the rescue the life in the field a whole lot easier. You don't always have to get an IV to get something into into your patients. And we think the patient will be happier too. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, that's all, that's a great great comment, Peter. Thank you very much for that, and thank you all very much for helping out record this. Please keep in touch uh, and keep your eyes open on the website for our white papers and upcoming educational opportunities. And if you have questions, as always, please refer them to Don and I. We thank you for, for listening today. Okay. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you.